0: Hey guys, it's Ryan. Thanks for tuning into Theology Ish. Before we jump in, I just want to emphasize that the discussions on this podcast are exploratory in nature and delve into a variety of theological perspectives. They do not strictly represent or define our personal stances on the faith nor the doctrine of our affiliated churches. We encourage listeners to reflect question and seek guidance from their local church leaders. Our goal is to foster understanding and curiosity. We ask that you listen with a humble and discerning mind. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Theology-ish. My name is Ryan and I am eating potato chips.
1: You, you could, like, put the mic away while you eat the chip.
0: No, people eat the people eat this stuff up. ASMR.
1: Mm, I, I don't... It's not really what we do here. What we do here is a podcast <laughs> about theology and church history, biblical studies, philosophy, yeah. etc. And that guy's name is William. Yes, that's me. I am the other guy. There are two guys here. And you're the other guy. And you're the other other guy. Okay. And we're both. Anyway, <laughs> in a way, in a way, as you're the other guy for me and I'm the other guy for you, which one might say is a pretty relativistic position, which is fitting because today we are going to talk about a dirty, filthy relativist um, this is probably, oh, gosh, I'm, hold on, let me collect myself. Yes. I'm, I'm angry, Ryan.
0: I know. Allow me. As I ranted about Star Wars for an hour in the Star Wars episode and talked about something I really loved, William is going to do the opposite today, and he's going to rant for an hour about something he really hates. What is that thing, William? Heresy, Ryan. Ryan.
1: Mm. Specifically, um, I, I'm. I debated whether or not I was going to say the name of this author and the name of his book, because uh, I, I don't want to like create problems. But also, who cares? I would fight this man with my bare hands if I got the opportunity.
0: You'd win too.
1: Uh, probably so. He's like he's got to be like eighty something now. Oh, dude, easy win. Yeah, easy win. W. <laughs> anyway, so I I have read a lot of books this past year. You have. Um I'm not going to say the number because it's an obnoxious amount. It's a lot. Mm. Um and this was amongst the books that I read. It, it I picked it up at a Goodwill like over a year ago for like 99 cents. And the title of the book is "Why Christianity Must Change or Die." And it is by Bishop John Shelby Spong. You may have heard of Mr. Spong before. He's kind of the uh, the default progressive thinker in, yeah the church. So you've probably heard stuff about him. You've probably heard things about what he believes. I certainly have. And I recognized the name. I thought the title sounded provocative, and it was a dollar. So I thought I'd read it.
0: More than you should have spent.
1: Yeah. I, I thought I'd read it and, and see for myself the sorts of things that Mr. Spong has to say. Um, so I got it, and I read it, and... It made me angry, and it made me angry for a couple reasons. Oh, just a couple? A couple that I will share. There are many reasons overall, but a couple that we'll talk about. The first reason is that Mr. Spong in this book has no appreciation for the historicity of what he claims is his religion. Mm. He doesn't care about the history of the church.
0: Yeah, progressive leaders don't typically tend to.
1: He cares about it so little that I'm, uh... I was disgusted by it. Ooh. I... I I'm gonna try and keep my blood pressure down. Because yeah. I'm an old man now. I recently turned 26. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to try and not turn purple and have the vein in my forehead pop out. But it, it, it's a disgusting 250 pages. Um, that long? Ugh. If that. It, it's sub 250. It's not particularly long. So... I am going to read a couple passages from this and share with you how I thought through it and why he's making mistakes in his thought process and why he sucks, why he should be defrocked because he is a bishop in the Anglican church, and why if your pastor at your church says this kind of thing, you need to physically remove them from the building. Dude,
0: they're Anglican anyway. That's all anyone needs to know about why they shouldn't read it.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> if if your minister says the kind of thing that John Shelby Spong says in this book, he is not your minister anymore. That is no longer your church. Or you can remove the minister and declare yourself now the minister of the church. Those are your options. Because the things that he says in this are not comparable. It's incompatible with the Christian faith. It just is.
0: That's a heavy statement.
1: Oh, let's start with the part. uh... (laughs) Oh, goodness. Oh,
0: this should be an episode.
1: I... Oh, how about we start with the part where he tacitly endorses eugenics? Can we start with that? Yeah. Just because, you know, I, I and my dear listener, I'm not particularly interested in presenting this book in a good light. You shouldn't read it. Take my word for it. It's bad. Don't read it. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Don't read it. Um. I'm going to straw man a little bit because we're pressed for time. Also, I don't care. Um, this book's bad. Ugh, I'm so pissed. I, I can feel the anger. I can see it. Ugh, I know. I'm, I'm so mad, Ryan. Okay.
0: Keep that blood pressure low.
1: <sighs> All right. I, I'm going to read a, a large quotation. Please do. In other cases, the God who supposedly authored these divine laws, that is the Ten Commandments, has been revealed as unable to anticipate the complexities of modern life. For example, is abortion murder? Some would argue that it is. But is it murder if the life of the mother is imperiled? Is it murder if it occurred in the first trimester before life enters the fetus in the moment we call quickening? Well, that's assuming a lot there, but whatever. Is it murder if the pregnancy is the result of the violence of either rape or incest? Is it murder if the birth of the child will destroy the mental health of the mother or the economic well-being of the family? Is it murder if tests reveal that the fetus is malformed? Is it murder if it was an accidental pregnancy that has come to an older menopausal couple? Is it murder if proper birth control has prevented pregnancy in the first place? It is not my intention to debate these issues because John Shelby Spong can't debate these issues in good faith because he is not a person of good faith or goodwill. He just throws things out there. Oh, boy. But whatever. <clears throat> I digress. It's not my intention to debate these issues, but simply to reveal how both modern medicine and medical technology have placed options before us that the ancient world in which the, new, in which the Ten Commandments were first composed could not have imagined. I'm going to read that last sentence again. Modern medicine and medical technology have placed options before us that the ancient world in which the Ten Commandments were first composed could not have imagined. Abortion existed in the ancient world. Not only did it
0: exist, Scripture mentions abortion at least once.
1: But abortion, not like it is today. No, no, no. In, uh, b- 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 hold on. I have source text. Yeah. The, hold on. Tertullian of Carthage, writing around the year 200, which granted is a while after the Ten Commandments are penned. But yeah, this is still the ancient world. The ancient world of Christianity yes, was familiar with... Abortion and also with birth control because they had uh, oral contraceptives at the time. They weren't as effective, but they worked about seventy percent of the time. They were pretty good. They also had sheep intestine condoms. Those yep. existed. Well, I think those. I don't think those were available in the ancient world. Were they not? No, that was. I a, thought those were around back then. That already. was a later, a later thing. Oh, okay. But I'm going to read about Tertullian because he describes abortion as it happened in the year two hundred which is almost exactly how it happens now. Among surgeon's tools there's a certain instrument formed with a nicely adjustable flexible frame for opening the uterus and keeping it open. It is further furnished with an annular blade by means of which the limbs within the womb are dissected with anxious but unfaltering care, its last appendage being a blunted or curved or curved hook with which the entire fetus is extracted by a violent delivery. There's also a copper needle or spike by which the actual death is managed in this furtive robbery of life. From its infanticidal function, they give it the name of Imbruchafikaitis. I don't know, it's Greek. The slayer of the infant, which was, of course, alive. Such apparatuses were possessed by Hippocrates and Asclepiades and Aristonis-Starshersts Some other names. Yeah. Dissectors of adults and the milder Soranus himself, who all knew well enough that a living being had been conceived and pitied this most luckless infant state, which had first to be put to death to escape being tortured alive. This is from his Treatise on the Soul, written around the year 210. Now, uh, we're just going to table the whole abortion thing. Okay. Table the whole debate. Okay. That's how abortion is done. They, They go in. Sometimes. It's done other ways, but sometimes they go in through the uterus and they kill the fetus by skewering it or scrambling it as best they can, and then they remove it bit by bit. That's how late-term abortion is done. Spong says that people in the ancient world couldn't have possibly imagined abortion. No, which shows what little care he had for his research, doesn't it? They were doing abortion in the ancient world. Not necessarily like that at the time of the New Testaments or at the time of the Ten Commandments, which is what this passage in this book is about. Yeah. But Tertullian is definitely ancient. And those other people that he references, those doctors, are ancient. Yes. They knew a thing or two. And they had oral contraceptives. And they practiced infanticide. On a regular basis in the ancient world, you had a baby you didn't want. You took it out to the countryside, and you just left it out to die of exposure. They, they, they weren't a different species from us. They were people like you and me, and they didn't lack imagination. They yeah. knew what abortion was. But I digress. <sighs> I'm quoting Spong some more. This ancient code of ethics is so clearly the product of its time. If we continue to suggest that somehow a theistic god was personally the author of these rules, then we have to face the fact that the god we postulate was not aware of the technological revolution that would someday overtake the world and render that god's divine and ancient law radically incomplete. When one turns to the other end of the life cycle, the questions are even more complicated— Before the advances of medicine, death came quickly in a wide variety of circumstances and sicknesses. Not so today. Modern medicine has pushed back the barriers of death to what sometimes seems to be an absurd extreme. Bodies are kept breathing respirators, hearts are kept beating on machines, and food is intravenously provided long after meaningful life has ceased to exist. Meaningful for who, Mr. Spong? Mmm. But I digress. (laughs) Is a breathing cadaver the same as life? Is it murder to stop these processes? That conclusion is supported by some religious voices today, while others debate the possible morality of physician-assisted suicide. Once again, my agenda is not to seek to solve these issues, but to demonstrate how inadequate the ancient code we call the Ten Commandments has become amid the, the vagaries of ethical concerns today. We're about to get to the bad part. That's not the bad part? No. Oh, no. I'm so close to throwing this book. I'm so mad, Ryan. I'm so mad. The ethical debate today is so complex that the ancient religious codes are not capable of shedding light on that complexity. Strong claim. Wrong claim, but yeah. yeah. We'll see a lot of that. A major religious body opposes birth control and effective family planning. He means the Catholic Church. All right. say what you mean, man. Yeah. But overpopulation has led to massive starvation and death in those countries no longer able to feed their expanding populations. Is the absence of birth control in those circumstances even a moral option in our generation? Humanitarian relief efforts save lives today in starving countries, but these same efforts only guarantee the death of the next generation if the population is not limited, so the morality of such humanitarian activity also becomes questionable. Do you know what he says there, Ryan? I think I do. He says, is it worth helping people in third world countries eat if you're just guaranteeing that those disgusting, filthy, poor people will reproduce? We need to limit their population. How does he propose to do that, Ryan? How do you limit a population? Well, either with birth control. Or, or
0: genocide.
1: Or eugenics. Yeah. He's advocating for eugenics. Hmm. Yeah. I threw the book there. I'm sorry. You did. I'm so mad. I hate, I hate this so much. I'm doing so good. I haven't cussed once. You haven't. I'm actually quite proud. So Mr. Mr. Spong, a bishop in the Anglican church says that the Ten Commandments are inadequate for dealing with ethical concerns in the modern world, and it's probably unethical for us to help people in poor countries eat because they might reproduce, and someone needs to curb the surplus population. What he's getting at is that
0: the law that was handed to us by God... Well, he doesn't believe in God, but we'll get to that. Yeah, but... The law that was given to us by God is insufficient today. It is insufficient. Not a fan of that. Also, not a fan of the whole eugenics thing.
1: Also, like, oh, oh, goodness. Oh, ha, ha, ha.
0: William is going to have an aneurysm by the end of the night, and I won't call an ambulance.
1: Wow, that's harsh, bro.
0: Tough love, brother.
1: Oh. Ha, ha.
0: Honestly, eating chips was a great idea. This is hilarious. <laughs> this is entertaining.
1: I just... I'm going to be over here yelling about eugenics and... Yeah, I'll just pop in every once in a while. Crunch, crunch, crunch.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll pop in to say something funny every once in a while. This is great.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm trying to decide where to go next. Th- that was one in particular that I, I really wanted to bring attention to. You know, we... Uh, um, at my church
0: as many churches do, participate in the Operation Christmas Child uh, ministry.
1: Well, you shouldn't. You're just helping those people breed.
0: Yeah, apparently by us giving children things that they might need for Christmas, according to this fellow, all we're doing is prolonging their suffering existence, and why would you want the poor people to breed?
1: (sighs) Oh. I'm going to read—I can really just flip this open and pick a paragraph, and it's going to be something heinous. Okay, and untrue. Heinous and untrue, both Mm. of those things. Institutional Christianity seems fearful of inquiry, fearful of freedom, fearful of knowledge, indeed fearful of anything except its own rapacious propaganda, which has its origins in a world that none of us any longer inhabits. The church historically has been willing to criticize, marginalize, or even expel its most creative thinkers. The list would stretch from Origen through Erasmus to Hans Kung. This institution seems far more eager to expend its energy defending its limited truth than to see its holy words for what they are, mere pointage towards the reality that limited words always distort and can never finally capture. This simple conclusion becomes inescapable as soon as the creeds themselves begin to spell out their affirmations and our questions should be heard. Oh, there goes the book on the floor again. Yep, that's where it belongs. Actually, it belongs in the garbage. Um, if Christianity is true, then it is the most important thing in the universe. Yes. And if it is the most important thing in the universe... Can you—and you have relatively unlimited power because you have access to kings, and they will do what you say most of the time. And there's someone over there, somewhere in France or something, and they're saying things about how if you want to be free, you need to not serve the king. You need to free the nipple and liberate yourself from the chains of religion— This is the most important thing of the universe. What are you supposed to do? And you have the power to do something about this person that's causing some problems. What are you supposed to do? Meet them in open debate?
0: Mm, Well, apparently, you're supposed to roll over and let them do their thing, according to our dear Well, they're creative
1: thinkers. Yeah. That's what Spong calls them. Creative thinkers. Now... The church is not afraid of inquiry. It is not afraid of questions. It's just that the questions have already been answered, and they were answered in 300. If you really want to know, go and read the stuff. There are volumes upon volumes by men who are much smarter than John Shelby Spong answering the questions that he's proposing people have, and you can read the opposing view, too. Mm. origin of alexandria who he decries he points out here as someone that's marginalized by the church and origin was marginalized by particular individuals in the church but the church did preserve origin and origins writings because they thought that they were good and worthwhile and they are good and worthwhile and you can read origin of alexandria's book against celsus it's about 500 pages if you have the stomach for it and in against celsus He quotes Kelsus at length, so you're really getting two books for the price of one. You get Kelsus's book, and you also get Origen's book. So, was the church afraid of inquiry? No. No. He met it head-on. He answered the freaking questions. He answers the questions that John Shelby Spong has here, in this thing, and he took care of it in the year 280. Now...
0: Some of the church today might be scared to answer questions. And that's because they don't know their history. That's because they haven't read the things by the guys who answered those questions already.
1: Oh, I'm trying to find the part where he's anti-Semitic because he says some terrible anti-Semitic things in here. I want everyone to get in the
0: comments and take a guess at how many paragraphs he'll get through before he tears pages out of this book
1: in anger. I'm guessing four. I almost threw this book away when i was done with it mm. but i held on to it for this because i thought it would make good
0: pod well, lucky for you i have a pair of scissors and a trash can just gonna
1: it's fine Probably. okay <clears throat> let's see let's see here i just flip this open i don't even know what this paragraph says this almighty he puts almighty in air quotes That's start also appeared in the sacred text to have had a not-so-noble political and moral agenda. The biblical God is portrayed as having had the power to split the Red Sea to allow the chosen ones to walk through on dry land, and as stopping the sun in the sky to allow the people of Israel more time to achieve a military victory over the Amorites. But in this same sacred text, that Red Sea was also closed by this god just in time to drown the hated Egyptians. And that sun was finally allowed to set as soon as the slaughter of the wicked Amorites was complete. What kind of almighty power is this? Is it even ethical? Says the eugenicist. Oh. Is one capable of worshipping so capricious a deity who appears to embody the worst of our human tribal and political hatreds? So what do we mean, then, when we call God Almighty in the Christian creed? Does any one of us really believe that? Yet can a God who is not capable of acting in this world in either of these traditional ways be more than a pale shadow of what God was once thought to be? Could anyone worship a God dismissed as impotent? Now, you didn't even bookmark that
0: one. You just opened the book.
1: That's just random paragraph, page 9. That's in page nine. Page nine. Oh my right god! Right in the front. Oh, that's such a bad start to a book. Oh no! So he's glad that God is powerful enough to split the Red Sea and to hold the sun up, but he's upset because the Red Sea closes in on the Egyptians and kills them. What? What? I, I, mm. Did he want the Egyptians to to kill the Israelites? well, yeah, why would you want the filthy poor people to breed? It, you know, you got a point. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to uh, let that last one. It, I, uh, ah. This hurts
0: physically. I don't think I'm hurting as much as you, but I didn't read the whole thing, so.
1: So I, I wrote in the margin, how dare God act? But God must must not act unless I like his action. Which is kind of what he says there. How yeah. dare God act by delivering a victory over the Amorites, but he acted wrong because it was a victory over the Amorites, and I don't think it's ethical. What? what are, I, I hate to be that guy, but what do you mean by ethical?
0: Whose ethics are we measuring Who, whose this by?
1: ethics? I'm do, assuming and then the his ethics. He's like, do any of us really believe that? You might not believe that, but that's because you're a godless sack of crap. <laughs> I believe it just fine. <laughs> it doesn't create any problems for me. <laughs> and here, here's here's a question for you. Here's a question for everyone, really. Because uh, the, the uh, Jewish conquest of uh, the Holy Land in... The book of Joshua creates a lot of problems for people. They don't like it. They feel like it's genocide. Um, How bad do people have to be before we're okay with God doing something about those bad people and that something is making them go away and making them go away is making them dead? How bad do they have to be? Is there a limit? Is there a point mm. when they are so bad that you would be cool with it? Mm. Just throwing that out there. You don't have to answer. I just want you to chew on that a little bit. I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark here and
0: guess that he has some issues with the whole Noah's Ark thing in that book. Uh, he doesn't
1: bring it up, I don't think. Oh, Not really? that I remember. I read this like I was going to say,
0: because I feel like the whole mass genocide of the planet via Flood would be an issue for him if these things are also issues.
1: Because uh, like, most of us are cool with the Nazis getting, you know, wrecked. Because yeah. Because they were Nazis. Yeah. There's a certain point when you're doing stuff bad enough that it's like, you know, maybe just get rid of them.
0: Dietrich Bonhoeffer was cool with it. So. Yeah, just,
1: you know, could go away. Make the bad people be gone. And I, I just wonder uh, how much—how uh, do you feel about human sacrifice, Ryan? You pro-human sacrifice? No, not a fan.
0: Pretty uh, forwardly anti-human sacrifice.
1: Well, is it ethical for you to get rid of people by killing them who do human sacrifice? Is that ethical of you?
0: It's not ethical of me, but if God does it, that's his prerogative. I'm not God. Yeah. There's the whole do not murder thing, right? So, like, I'm not going to... Kill someone who does that, but if God does it, then yeah, cool.
1: Because they they were doing child sacrifice and human sacrifice and all kinds of other terrible, awful, heinous things. Yeah, uh, I so, mean, you know, the the conquest of the Holy Land and
0: yeah, like I don't know if I, in good conscience, could kill Hitler, but I could. I'd uh, kill. I'd kill Hitler. Fair enough, but you know if god killed hitler or if god made someone else kill hitler or god if made- god made hitler kill himself who am i to say no to that mission accomplished but <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah
1: and, and like i i know that's that's a heavy one to throw out there but
0: but no killing the egyptians that were tailing the israelites into the red sea that was bad
1: that was unethical of god how dare he that's what spong sounds like
0: okay spong here's my question spong how is that unethical of god if god is the arbitrator of what is ethical if god be
1: then god is the arbitrator of ethics i'm gonna spoil this book for you spong does not believe in god Mm. At least insofar as my reading of him goes. He has, like, weaselly redefinitions where God is the unity that we feel with one another when we experience love or, like, some kind of...
0: So he's a dirty hippie.
1: Dirty hippie BS.
0: hate this thing. See how much angrier you can get before the end of this? I... Brother man, we are... Just over halfway in.
1: Here we go. Some more Spong. Not only oh, was the entry of Jesus into the world held to be abnormal by the biblical writers, but the creed goes on to suggest that he his exit was abnormal as well. He ascended into heaven, we say, making the cycle the divine round trip from Jesus' original home in heaven complete like the stories of his virgin birth, the stories of Jesus' literal ascension have been equally discredited by the expansion of knowledge. The biblical account of Jesus' return to heaven was based upon the ancient idea that the sky was the abode of God and that it was up. A literal ascension makes no sense to those of us who live on this side of Copernicus, Galileo, and the space age. Indeed, the very word Up is a meaningless concept in our time. When citizens of China and the United States point upward, they are pointing in diametrically opposite directions. Up is a spatial image. Can can we just put a pin in that? If I take John Shelby Spong and throw him down a flight of stairs, Hmm. and then I would like him to explain to me what happened without using the word down because we've (laughs) been to the moon so the word down doesn't mean anything
0: oh man
1: well i'm not threatening violence i'm not threatening violence against john shelby spong I i would not hurt him i don't want anyone else to hurt him i just think he's an idiot and arguing in bad faith. Do you see how that's a bad faith argument? Oh, yeah. Like, do do I even have to, like, dig into that at all? Or but, is the easy know, just on the nose? Up is relative, bro. Because if up for a person
0: in China is down for us, then up doesn't even exist, man.
1: If Jesus just, like, ascended into heaven... Well... The, what... If that's what the people saw, that's what they saw. Sure. He went up. Well, which way is up even? I don't know. Go somewhere in Jerusalem and then point up. That way. That way. He went that way. And that is entirely ignoring the frequent use of spatial language of up and down metaphorically throughout Holy Scripture because they use it metaphorically throughout Holy Scripture, he just they ignores sure that. He just ignores it. They talk about going up to Jerusalem all the time, and it's like on a hill, but it's not... Up. Up. So, I don't know. Maybe Jesus, like, floated into the temple or something, and they say he ascended. I I don't know. I wasn't there. I yeah, didn't or see it. how Scripture talks about
0: hymns of praise being sung by, quote, flaming tongues above so so what does above mean then if up isn't above real above
1: doesn't mean anything it's yeah, yeah. we've been to space <laughs> okay all right we won the space race it ref- going on with this uh quotation here <coughs> It reflects the assumption that the flat Earth is the center of the universe. They didn't necessarily believe in a flat Earth in the first century, but whatever. And as such, it is incomprehensible to the modern mind. I don't know. I don't have a problem comprehending it. That's just me. Yeah. Today, if one could rise from the Earth in an upward trajectory and go far enough that the person would not arrive in heaven, but they would rather achieve or an orbit or, by escaping the gravitational pull of the Earth, would journey into the infinite depths of space... Those up-and-down images are irrelevant in our space-comprehending world. A Jesus who came from heaven above to earth below by way of a virgin birth and who journeyed back to the presence of God by way of a cosmic ascension is not made of the same stuff of which you and I are made. You're right. He had hypostatic union with the— uh, Yeah. He's consubstantial with the Father. But whatever. Uh, For how example could such a life— be one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin as the epistles of the hebrew claims what kind of temptation would that be thus jesus's humanity so essential to tradition to traditional christian theology is instantly compromised if we take these texts literally he becomes not the incarnate one the perfect god and perfect man but a kind of celestial visitor from another planet not unlike superman or captain marvel i'm going to throw the book again did he just call god an alien well, he's saying that because it says that Jesus ascends to heaven, then Jesus is more akin to Superman than he is to being fully human and fully divine. So Spong just doesn't grasp basic Christian concepts yeah. like the hypostatic union, which is that Christ, Jesus, was fully God and fully man.
0: I'm starting to see why this makes you so angry. Uh, I've
1: never seen you this angry. And I'm holding back. I am keeping it in. Ryan? Yes. Who is better equipped for reading George Washington's journal, which was written in English, and knowing what it means? You who live a couple hundred years after George Washington and read English, or some guy who lives in, I don't know, Columbia in the year 4000. Who's better equipped for reading that? Probably me. Why is that? Well,
0: because I speak English,
1: and— As a first language?
0: Yeah. So you'd say you understand English pretty good then, huh? Yeah, and I only
1: live a couple hundred years after it was written. Yeah, so you almost—you have a a pretty comparable social context. Yeah, probably. Culturally, you're a lot—have more in common with George Washington than that guy in Columbia in the year 4000 does. Yeah. Yeah. Almost certainly. Okay. Let's keep that thought in mind as we go to this next part. Okay. Perhaps before we can proceed in this inquiry, we need to embrace the idea that the creeds did not drop from heaven fully written. It's true. That's his. No one thinks that. Yeah. We have the historical stuff about it. Whatever. These familiar liturgical words were not even part of the original Christian understanding of the God revealed in Jesus. What we call the Apostles' Creed of the Christian Church did not begin to be formulated until the later years of the 3rd century and was not adopted until the 4th century of this common era. He's so pretentious. I hate it. Even after adoption, its claim to being the literal and final truth of God was compromised when it was later modified by the Nicene Creed and still later by the Athanasian Creed. The purpose of every written creed historically was not to clarify the truth of God. That is a very serious claim. A wrong one at that.
0: I'm pretty sure that's exactly what the purpose of those was.
1: It was rather to rule out some contending point of view. It was to clarify the teachings of the church because there was heresy. The adoption and expansion of these creeds took place in church councils amid racious debates and politically motivated compromises. I see no reason to believe that the people who participated in these councils of the church in that distant time were any more brilliant, insightful, or knowledgeable than are the Christians of today. I put a note there. Then he obviously hasn't read their writings. Mm. If you read... The fathers of the church, and you do not think that they are more insightful, more brilliant, and more knowledgeable than Max Lucado and John Shelby Spong and Francis Chan. You have not read them very carefully.
0: I mean, I like Francis Chan, but too. he is not a
1: church father, right? He, he is significantly inferior in every way, shape, and form to Origin of Alexandria. There you go. But, like, what do you want me to say, man? Go read Origins Against Celsus and tell me that's not one of the greatest pieces of literature ever produced by the Christian Church. Tell me that's worse than Francis Chan's books. Uh, I, therefore, do not believe that the Christological formula was set for all time at Chalcedon in 451 CE. I believe that we Christians must inevitably revisit Chalcedon and once again do the hard work of rethinking and redefining the Christ experience for our time and in words and concepts appropriate to our world. I even further the reopening of the debate between Arius and Athanasius on the nature of the Christ. Oh, so he
0: wants to have another church council, that thing he said he didn't like?
1: He doesn't believe that Jesus is God. He doesn't believe that God exists. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe in anything remotely resembling Christianity. If your minister says this kind of—if you find books by John Shelby Spong on the bookshelf in your pastor's office, you need to have a sit-down conversation with him to the effect of, how much of this do you believe? Because if it's more than 2%, you need to lead that man out of the church and say, nope, you're fired. And you can deal with the paperwork later. You probably don't have the authority to do that as an individual in your church. But by golly, we got to draw the line somewhere. If you are not a Christian, you shouldn't be the lead minister at a church. If you don't believe in the Trinity, if you don't believe in the creeds of the church, if you don't believe in the Bible, what the hell are you doing there? Go away. Get your own stuff, man. Like, I, I hate this so much. <laughs> the Nicene Creed didn't fall from heaven fully f- written. It's true. We had some named Arius, that Spong's a big fan of, who started saying things about there how Christ was a uh, created being. His tagline was there was a time when he was not. Right? That's Arius's tagline. Yeah. But it is the Christian confession and was always the Christian confession from jump. That Jesus, who is the Christ, is co-eternal with God the Father, because in Jesus' words, "I and the Father are one." Everything that the Father is, the Son is, except that the, the Son, Father. except that the Son is begotten, and everything the Son is, the Father is, except for the Father is unbegotten. Yeah, begotten, not made. Go back and listen to our episode on the Trinity. It's a good one. Probably not as
0: entertaining as this, though.
1: Because Arius said there was a time when he was not, they got together and they said, Hey, man, the book of John says in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and nothing that was made was made apart from him, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst men. Nothing that was made was made apart from him. Therefore, that includes the word can't be a created thing because nothing that was created was, would have been created apart from the word, right? Yeah. You follow that line of logic? Yeah. Or is that too esoteric for Spong to pick up on? I mean, it might be. You're right. You have to have a brain to comprehend it. <laughs> so, Arius says there was a time when he was not, and they get together and they say, hold up. I don't think that's right. And they debated about it for a while. And they came up with the Nicene Creed and they landed on nope, Arius is wrong. And then, believe it or not, the history of the church, which Spong would know if he ever picked up a book, the history of the church is that for that century following the Nicene Creed, the Arians actually got a lot of influence. They won for a while. The Nicene Creed was anti Arian. But the Arians were in charge of everything for a good long while. There are a couple church fathers, in particular Athanasius of Alexandria and the Cappadocians. So that's uh, St. Gregory Nazianzus, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and St. Basil of Caesarea. They were, are referred to as kind of like the last Orthodox Christians of their time. Yeah, If it wasn't for those Four gentlemen and also Basil's sister whose name I don't remember um, if they didn't put in the legwork that they put in, we would not have Trinitarian Christianity like we have it today because this it was not just up to a vote, right that's that's the point I'm getting at. They didn't go to Nicaea and take a vote and then the people were like, yep, Trinity. And then it was a done deal, and from then on out, they suppressed the poor Arians. That's not how it went down. The Arians got a lot of traction and did some heinous stuff. And the people who were orthodox in their belief, who adhered to the Nicene interpretation of Holy Scripture, which is the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, there weren't a whole lot of them. And they ended up prevailing, all right? That's not nothing. But Spong doesn't know this because he doesn't know his history. Which is why you need to know yours,
0: but I digress. Who needs history, bro? Just don't let poor people reproduce, right? Some aggressive page turning you get uh, got going on there. Uh, Good news—we've only got about, about got about ten minutes left here.
1: Here's some anti-Semitic that he says. I've, nice. I've started cussing. Dang, that's you have. That's like the third, fourth one.
0: Yeah, Jesse's gonna have some work to do.
1: Let's have the explicit tag on this one episode. <laughs>
0: I don't know how to get that on there, so I guess I'll have to figure that I out. I think if we just say the F word, it happens automatically. I don't know if Spotify picks up on that or if you have to put it on. I have no idea.
1: Okay. These Jews had once believed that God fought at their side against their enemies. They could believe that no longer. So this is in, in reference to the, uh, the Babylonian exile. Okay. They once believed that God might punish them for their waywardness, but that God would not destroy them. They could believe that no longer. They once believed that they were especially chosen people, but they could believe this no longer. They once believed that God had instructed them on where to live and how to worship. They could believe that no longer. They once believed that God dwelled in Jerusalem and ruled over Judah. They could believe that no longer. They once believed that God could hear their prayers. They could believe that no longer. They once believed that they had a destiny and a future. They could believe that no longer. They once believed that God could and would care for them. They could believe that no longer. They could not sing the Lord's song again, for they were in a strange and devastating exile. And in that exile, the God they had once served lost all meaning. This God, quite frankly, could no longer be God for them. It is traumatic to watch the God who has given shape, definition, and meaning to life be removed from a people's awareness. There are but two alternatives for such a displaced deity. The god must either grow or die. That is what being a spiritual exile is all about. I'm going to throw the book again. Ryan? Yes. You ever read Lamentations? Yes. You ever read Jeremiah? Yeah. You ever read some of the Psalms? Sure have. You ever read Nehemiah? Yeah. You ever read some of the minor prophets?
0: Yeah. I've I've read the Bible cover to cover, bro.
1: Yeah, so um after the Babylonian exile, the Jews stopped believing in God, right? No. They, no, no, no. Well, what what does Spong say? They couldn't believe that, that God would punish them for waywardness.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: They, they couldn't believe that they were specially chosen. They believed that God had instructed them on where to live and how to worship. They stopped believing that after the Babylonian exile, right? That's what we find in the source texts, right? No? I, no. Is uh, that not what our primary sources say? Is that not what history bore out? Is that not what happened, Ryan?
0: I'm afraid it isn't, William. Um, so then Shelby
1: Spong is just full of...
0: Yeah, I've I've got some bad news. Full of poop! And that bad news is that Shelby Spong was wrong. And William is now attempting to tear the book in half. It's
1: not freaking... Um, and failing. Ah. Uh... So there's, there's some samples of this book for you guys. Don't read it. Don't read it. It's a waste of your time. It's not even bad scholarship. Like, I, I could take... A, I'm going to cuss again. I'm going to do it. All right. I could take a on a keyboard. <laughs> and it would... The turds pressing them down would produce a better work of scholarly material with greater care... And greater attention to primary sources than this. I'm in awe of the New England progressive rich guy BS that exudes from this book. I hate it so much. And I want good things for John Shelby Spong. I do. I I want him to see the error of his ways. I want him to change his mind on some stuff. And, you know, this is an old book. This was written in the mid-90s. Between now and then, he that's a lifetime, you know? He yeah. could have changed his thoughts on a lot of this stuff. I hope he did. What do you say we get him on the podcast and have a chat? No. <laughs> I, I would not be willing to be in the same room with this man. We could do it
0: over a video call.
1: Um, there's a story from... Second century, late second century, Irenaeus of Lyons, who was taught by Polycarp of Smyrna, who was made bishop of Smyrna by John the Beloved. Irenaeus tells us this story. Okay. So it's probably true. Yeah. John was in Rome and so was Polycarp. They were there together. And Marcion, who was the first heretic, went into this bathhouse and John was in the bathhouse. And when he saw Marcion, he got up and ran out buck naked and he yelled, let us run, flee before the stones of the building fall in upon the man therein. Mm. Because he's not, he's like, nope, this guy's a heretic. He's wrong about everything. I am not going to be in the same building as him. And one of the drawbacks of Protestantism is that we have so many different little denominations with their own little quirks that it's hard to draw a line in the sand and say when someone is or is in or out, you know? Yeah. Um, But I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say that John Shelby Spong is out. Um, There's nothing in this book that reflects historical Christianity. He takes a big fat dookie on historical Christianity and he is bad in his thought process and the first passage that we read where he tacitly endorses eugenics shows where his thought process leads to eugenics um but tacit eugenics because he's cowardly and unwilling to say what he freaking means so if you have a minister at your church who says that they're a fan of this stuff you need to find a different church yeah why Christianity must change or die? Well, Christianity is supposed to be the bride of Christ and not the whore of some son of a b- up in New England. <laughs> he wants her to get some tattoos and some piercings and dye her hair purple so that he can find the church acceptable. But the church isn't for Spong, it's for Christ. Mm. So, if the church dies because it won't change, then the church should be dead. Mike, drop but it won't die from not Book changing. Drop. If the church changes in order to try and preserve itself, then it's not what it was. It's no longer then the it's church. dead anyway. So either preserve it with integrity or let it die. Because either way, you're preserving it. And that is better than bastardizing the faith to try and appeal to some nitwit 20th century sensibilities about what is and isn't. Ethical, quote unquote. Because he's very concerned with what's ethical, unless that ethical thing happens to be poor people producing. Yeah, they can't do that. I'm mad, Ryan.
0: Oh, I can tell.
1: <sighs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Theology Ish. Uh, if you have any questions for us, send us an email at theologyish at gmail.com. Uh, and please like, comment, and subscribe, and leave us a review. Five stars, preferably.
0: This was a five-star episode, I think.
1: I'm so mad.
0: Man, I don't think I've ever said so little and been so happy in my entire life.
1: Uh, You know, I finished this book, and I determined that I was going to get rid of it. And then I held on to it so that we could talk about it and I could read some sections of it. And now I'm debating if I should throw it away with the off chance that someone might pick it up and read it and then condemn their soul to hell. Or if I should set it on fire. I'm afraid it might not burn since it was forged in hell. Mm. Well. But I digress.
0: Yeah. Man, what an episode. I can't say there was much theology done. I mean, there
1: was theology when I dunked on Spong for being wrong about
0: things. Yeah, and nor there were, was there uh, much conversation to be had, frankly. I found it much more entertaining to sit here and eat potato chips while you get angry. And I think that was the right move. I think this will make for a very entertaining episode.
1: Again, thank you for listening. And <laughs> next week, we will be talking about something
0: else. Whatever that thing is that we decide.
1: Yeah. If you have something you would like to hear us talk about, uh, send, send us that email at theologyish at gmail.com.
0: And we promise to be less angry next week.
1: I promise nothing. <laughs> well. Be angry about things that are worth being angry about.
0: Yeah, flip the tables. Pull a Jesus. Uh. Anyway, we're going to cut it off here. This is... Uh, gone on probably too long already. Don't read Shelby's stuff. It's bad. Sorry for the cussing. No you're not. Anyway.
1: No. I'm not.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't read his stuff. It's bad. That's that's the one takeaway from this whole thing. And that's about it. Thanks for listening. We will catch you in the next episode. See ya. Bye.